Let It Be, May 6, 1970. The Beatles come to America. Yeah, 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 yeah. Episode 19, Let It Be. Welcome to the Beatles Come to America podcast. I am your host, Tom Galker, along with the Beatle guru, Brooke Happen. And the end is near as we finally chat about the last Beatle album ever. Ever. It's released on May 6, 1970. Before we get into this album, let's get into some housekeeping notes before we get into that show. I've said it before, I have a podcast. It's called Something Came From Baltimore. I've had it for about four years. It's a music interview podcast, more about jazz, R&B, and blues. And it's not really about Baltimore, but we, we have some Baltimore artists there. We want you to subscribe. The link is in the show notes. We want you to be a part of the Be More Music scene. The Beatle guru, Brooke Halpin, is all-knowing when it comes to the Beatles. He sweats Beatle DNA. It's true. I saw it. Follow him on his Facebook page. It's called Come Together with the Beatles and Brooke Halpin. The link is in the show notes. Oh, and we have our own Facebook page. It's called The Beatles Come to America. And what we're asking you to do, as we got this far, is to rank all your U.S. Beatle albums in order. It's a lot harder to do than you think. It really is. So go on the Facebook page and give it a shot. And we hope you subscribe, participate, and enjoy. At this point, you got this far. Just remember that we love the Beatles, and so love us in the comments and enjoy our other creative projects. It's The Beatles Come to America. It's episode 19. Let it be. And we're back. All right. What we got in front of us is Let It Be, the Beatles album, and uh, the soundtrack. And you know how I hate soundtracks yes, uh, you do. when it comes to the Beatles. But in this case, I, I'm going to give you my rating in a couple seconds. This is a soundtrack, too. A really, really depressing documentary that that should never have been like that. Correct. It came out May eighth, nineteen seventy, with a yeah. Phil Spector production, and it wasn't a big seller compared to other Beatle masterpieces. It's a four times platinum. It did hit number one. Initial critic response was completely uh, unfavorable across the board. However, I think time has been really kind to it, and I think people think a little different, at least of the songs. The, the album only is thirty five minutes, thirty five minutes and ten seconds. And if you think about the hours and hours that they they played in the studio it's how they boiled this down is is kind of questionable don't let me down was omitted from let it be for whatever reason and that they added on across the universe there's a let it be naked that came out in 2003 which i know you totally love no no i hate that one <laughs> <laughs> rolling stone gave it a three out of five all Music Guide gave it a 4.5 out of 5. Time Has Been Good, and it's number 86 of 500 Greatest Albums of All Time by Rolling Stone. It won an Academy Award for Best Original Song Score in 1970. It was out of print, and it, in 1976, it went out of print for three years. Like, it just did not exist. But how we like to do this interview is, Brooke, you lived and breathed this album. What's the reaction to the album when you, when you got it? And also, what's your thoughts about the album cover? Okay, well, given the fact that this album was released after the Beatles had officially broken up, it was the end. 
this was the end of the Beatles. This is the last album as as a band, as a group that we would know of them recording together. Yes, they did little bits together, you know, on the Ringo album. And of course, then they did Free as a Bird and Real Love much later. Thank God they were able to do that. But aside from those things, in terms of group with the four of them together making an album, this was it. And... Again, context. What were we listening to before we listened to this album? We were listening to Abbey Road. <laughs> now, you put this up next to Abbey Road, it's like, oh, wait a minute. I- I'm sorry. No, there's something wrong here. And there's a lot wrong here. You know, Abbey Road is a fantastic album, as I'm sure you would agree, that they knew that they were breaking up. They recorded the music for the Let It Be album before they recorded Abbey Road. And even though Let It Be was released after Abbey Road is really the last album that the Beatles did. You go from Abbey Road to this album and it's like, oh my God, it's all over. It's not the same. And, And even, and this is something, this is very, very important that I don't think many people realize. The Beatles had built their own recording studio at their Apple headquarters at 3 Savile Road in London. Every recording studio sounds different because of the room, because of the equipment, the microphones, and the control board. Even when you listen, you know, when you listen to these songs, not the ones that were recorded up on the roof, because obviously that's going to sound live, which they do sound live. But you listen to the songs that were done in the studio, for instance, like Two of Us long winding road and let it be it doesn't sound nearly as good because it's not the sound of the abbey road recording studios that's the first thing okay and then we look at the album and john is this is one of the worst pictures in time period of john i mean it, is, he, he, it looks like he hasn't washed his hair in, in maybe a week or two i mean really it's it's a terrible picture of him ringo is sad you know, he looks like he's about to cry. Paul's got that wide-open eye look like, mm, gee, I wonder what's going to happen next. And then the only one that's happy on the album, coincidentally, is Mr. Harrison, because he knows that he can finally leave the band. He's been trying to quit the band ever since they stopped touring after they played Candlestick August 1966. So the four faces are quite strikingly different. And then, of course, there's the whole bit about, well, the background for John and Ringo and George's photos is sort of an off-white background. But the background to Paul's photo is red. Now, why is that? Well, that ties into the whole Paul is dead. You know, is that he had a different color because it's not really Paul. The red's supposed to be blood. I mean, that was actually stuff that people thought about back then. So it's a really sad album that I, when I first bought the album, I got the English release. And it came with a, like a, oh gosh, maybe a close to a 90-page book of the conversations that took place while they were working and recording at Twickenham. This is the Twickenham album, all right? This is the, this is January 1969. This is Twickenham, this is the rooftop, and this is the Apple recording studio, the Beatles recording studio. So the book that I got that came with the album uh, is incredible. I still have it. Incredible photographs of all that time and the conversations that were going on between the, all four Beatles. The label on the album that I purchased was a 
red apple, unlike all the green apples that we had had. Now, why was it a red apple? Well, my interpretation is that red for stop. I know that the green was the Granny Smith, that just so happens that the color green means go. So green for go, red for stop. So it's it's a terribly sad album. It it was re- when when the album was released just a few days before the film. By the way, none of the Beatles attended the premiere. They didn't care. It was all over. I mean, can you imagine that? You know, compared to when A Hard Day's Night was released and Help, no. They they didn't even show up. This recording, when they were doing all the songs at Twickenham in January of 69, it was given to Glenn Johns to do mixes, and he did two different mixes to the Beatles, and the Beatles did like. And then it was shelved. And then they went on, and they went to do Abbey Road, and then Phil Spector got involved, and Phil produced this album, was not produced by George Martin, with the exception of Across the Universe, because that was recorded in 1968 at Abbey Road, by the way. So there's a different sound. You know, the continuity uh, of sound is not consistent. You've got live rooftop, you've got one track recorded at Abbey Road, which produced by George Martin, and then you have the other songs recorded at the Beatles recording studio at Apple headquarters. So it was inconsistent just in terms of the sound. The even the back cover, when you look at the photographs of them, you know, John's screaming, which is cool. Ringo looks rather indifferent. You know, Paul singing into a microphone and there's George. What's George doing on the back cover? He's smiling again. <laughs> so George was the happy Beatle at the time because he knew, you know, that it was all over. It's interesting that they would pick those photographs for this. So that's my initial take on on the actual LP. I remember you know, getting it, as I said, I bought it some time after it came out because I wasn't, to be honest with you, when it came out, it wasn't in, I was not interested in it because I knew it was all over and I didn't buy it until, hmm, oh gosh, a good six months later. That's when I bought it. I bought it when I was out in Los Angeles. Uh, regarding Phil Spector's work on the album, John said, quote unquote, that he did a great job. Paul didn't like it. You know, Paul didn't like Phil Spector's mixes. And that's a whole, we'll get into the specifics as we go through the songs. So it does say it's a new phase Beatle album, you know, performed live. That's true. That's true. It, it, part of it, as as I'd said, is, was performed live up on the rooftop. So they were trying to, they were trying to get back. The whole idea with the Twickenham recording sessions in January, the '69, completely driven by Paul, George, Ringo, and John were not interested in trying to get back. Paul wanted the Beatles to get back. That's why it was called to get back sessions and that's why this was actually called the get back album it was supposed to be getting back to rock and roll to their roots with not doing a lot of overdubbing without without bringing in orchestras and arrangements and and big productions so when phil specter got involved with it phil is known for his wall of sound. So he did 
just the opposite of what McCartney envisioned the Get Back album to be. You know, Phil brought in orchestra, choirs, all sorts of instruments. So, it, it was a mess to begin with, you see. That's why, I mean, think about it. Can you imagine, it, you know, they're working on a, on a new album, and they couldn't even get a mix that they liked. So they actually shelved this in 69. It was it was not good because they were falling apart. Paul was doing everything he could to to get back with the lads, and they were not interested. And so the Get Back session, Get Back album, you know, they couldn't get back, so they had to let it be, and that's exactly what they did. Uh, just by talking about the album cover, one thing that I thought was interesting is that they were going to go with uh, the uh, hallway, the um, interior stairway at EMI, Manchester yeah. Square headquarters, which they right. en- uh, ended up using it for the Blue album. So it would have been right. fun to have a bookend of you know the Please Please Me album cover, and then turn around and have the um, the final album look you know older, older, scarier looking. Right. Right. I, I thought right. that that would have been kind of cool, kind of bookend it properly. But I mean, it was great for the the red and the blue album later. So for Let It Be for me, and I saw the movie first, and boy, you know what a downer it was. So oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> between the oh, God. the lethargicness of it and the color scheme of the the gels and the wall and the slow pace and the 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 lack of interest and the random shots of Yoko like she's from another planet and the apathy <laughs> you know what I'm saying like they they didn't color yeah. her correctly at all and uh, yeah and then they had the fight with Paul and uh, George put a bad taste in my mouth that this album was going to be bad even though they had big hits on it I remember buying this at that time period that it was a cutout Beatles never are on cutouts but let it be because of the uh, what we talked about in the 70s, 76, where it changed from capital. Um, they just dumped all of the older stuff in the cutout bins, and I saw it, and, and I said, oh, cutout means it's not good. It's not a high-quality album. So I did buy it. I played it a couple times. I shelved it, and through the years, um, I really learned to love this album in a in a very special way. It is different, even at their worst. Even at the, the the point where they're just like doodling together, they're fantastic. I love a lot of these songs. Where I, as a whole, this album means a lot of doom and gloom, but the song quality, even what they pulled out, I'm good with. Like I, I feel that this is kind of probably where they were going to go in the '70s, where it would be a little more looser, less structure, less concept albums, and them just playing kind of. On the, on the lines of like a, the Eagles of some sort, where it's more laid back and they're just bringing in their work together. I, I like this album. I like this a lot more. I don't like the baggage that's around it. Yeah, I should mention that I did go see the movie when it came out. And as we talked about when we talked about the other albums, like the, the movie albums, coming out of the theater... After Yellow Submarine, as I mentioned, you know, people were—we were joyful, we were joyous, we were. Everybody was singing all together now, all together. Everybody was happy because the Beatles were still together. The Beatles 
Pepperland was restored. Love prevailed over the evil wickedness of the Blue Meanies. When this film ended and we walked down to the theater, nobody said a word. And I'm not exaggerating. It was so depressing because it was so obvious that this was the documentation of the dissolve and the disintegration of the biggest band, you know, that provided the soundtrack and direction and inspiration for our lives. And we're watching it. It was painful to watch the movie. Really was. It's a terrible, terrible thing to see. Who let that movie go out that way? Because, I mean... Someone had to go, oh, okay, here's a documentary. We cut it. This is what's going to uh, go out. I don't know. There are cool things when they're sitting there jamming that I. Um, it's interesting. I don't know. It just it was really bad. <laughs> it was really bad. Even if they did like one-offs and they pulled Paul aside where he's kind of explaining everything and then Ringo explaining things, at least you had like a, a, a narrative that you know was clean and that even Phil Spector or something, someone to a narrative that they cut away to kind of explain what's going on because it was just a disaster. With that all in mind, <laughs> we got an album to talk about. I Dig a Pygmy by Charles Hawtrey and the Deaf Aids. Phase one in which Doris gets her oats. That was the intro fun that John was having. That's how the album starts off. That precedes the two of us. And Charles Hawtrey was a British comic actor at the time. Now, let me say that this, all these little bits that John did, and they were mostly John, you know, he was so funny, and even though the band was pretty much dying, he still would do these bits and say these funny things that nobody knew what the hell he was talking about for the most part, unless you were on the inside circle. So I loved, actually that part of the album I loved more than, well, let me just say, it was a very positive addition to an otherwise very dark and sad otherwise a sad album at least we had these interjections with john saying these silly bits and we start out with two of us it was recorded in january 31st 1969 it it was originally uh, titled on our way home and i love this song i think it's a great song there's a a lot of covers of this through the years boney m uh, amy mann michael penn did it on the I Am Sam soundtrack, Guster. It's a pretty song. If it was off this album and on something else, it would be fantastic. It's To me, it's still a fantastic song. This is the first song on the Let It Be album. And right from the very beginning, in the chorus, Paul and John sing, We're on our way home. We're on our way home. We're going home. Oh, my God. That's it. They, they're telling us that they're going home. And they did. And at the end of the song, what does McCartney say? Going home. Better believe it. Goodbye. We're going home. You better believe it.
I mean, you cannot be more explicit than that. <laughs> he was telling us that that was it. Goodbye. And that's how the album starts off. Let's talk about the lyrics, because people think, oh, it's, you know, Paul wrote this song about Linda. Well, yes, some of the lyrics do pertain to Paul and Linda. But the two of us are really Paul and John. When he says, you and I have memories longer than the road that stretches out ahead. Well, he had been with Linda at this point for about a year plus, a little more than over a year. Now, how long was he with John? What, from 57 until 69? Wow. 57, 67, you know, so we're, we're talking about, you know, a long, long time, many years. And then he goes, you and, you and me chasing paper. Well, what does that mean? Well, he wasn't chasing any paper with Linda. You and me chasing Chasing Paper was doing business affairs and trying to do business deals, you know, with Apple and with Alan Klein. This is very much about John and Paul, in my opinion. And you can hear even the way that they harmonize so nicely. It's reminiscent of the early days when John and Paul harmonized. So in a way, it's like they're going, going back. They did get back to singing harmony in this song like they used to in the early days. And what's also interesting about it, just from a sound perspective, is that instead of a bass guitar line, which of course Paul more than likely would have overdubbed, Paul's playing the, you know, the riff on the acoustic guitar. George is playing a bass line, but he plays it on a six-string Fender Telecaster, which is yeah, a little different. It's a little unusual. You know, George certainly knew how to play the bass. He could have played bass guitar, but he played, you know, the low notes on on the six string teleelectric, which gave it an. I'm sure you're quite familiar with the bass line. It's pretty prominent in the mix. You can't miss it. So, is it a great song? I wouldn't say it's one of the best Beatles songs. No, um, I would say it's a good song, certainly, and it's it's a biographical song that Paul wrote about him and John. The second song is Dig a Pony. It was originally going to be called All I Want Is You. Right. Yeah. Lennon calls this out song a piece of crap. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Uh, John says it's a piece of garbage. Yeah. yeah. So he's not happy with it. It's a song that was written for Yoko and he was using Bob Dylan's writing or styling techniques. Uh, the guitar is very chunky and i just think it's a it's a good production it's very non-beatle-like to me this album always reminds me of uh, la woman by the doors it just feels raw and a little more bluesier so i connect these two albums together for some reason in my head maybe it's because i bought them at the same time but i look at it as this is kind of what people were doing back in that that day where very bluesy very loose totally completely different than than abbey road but dig a pony, I dig it. I think it's awesome. All right, so you dig, you dig, dig a pony. Right? I totally dig it. I, I'm gonna give a lot of praise to this album because it's a lot higher on my ranking. I think you're, you'll find out later. Well, what's interesting about this song is that it's in three-four time, which is unusual for a blues 
song. You know, usually the blues are in 4-4 four, four time, but this is in 3-4 time. The lyrics are abstract. I think John, if we were to ask John today, what did he mean, you know, when he said, when he sang the lyrics to Big Pony, he probably would say, I don't know. <laughs> because he was a genius in terms of just making up words and, and sentences that sounded really, really good that didn't have any meaning at all. And this is a good example of that. The the riff, the guitar riffs are wonderful in this song. All I want is you. It's wonderful. So there is a problem in the harmony. Everything has got to be just like you want it to. Paul and John, oh, the harmony is, oh gosh, I mean, to this day, I listen to it and it's like, oh, it's really out of tune. Every time they get to that part, and even because, you know, the harmony is not tight. And, you know, it was up on the rooftop and it was cold and, you know, you could factor those things on. But this is, these are the Beatles. <laughs> you know, the Beatles, you want to fix it, but you can't fix it. So they say this is a new phase live album, sort of, you know, to kind of cover their tail ends. I love George's uh, guitar solo, wonderful lead guitar solo in this. Really excellent. I agree. This and, is, I have to interrupt, but this song is great, loud, very loud. It's uh, the guitar riff on it. Yeah, yeah, they really are. Yeah. And that's what makes the song, because if you try to follow it lyrically, you don't know what the hell he's talking about. Now, Big Pony, Pony is also another slang term for heroin, by the way. And John was doing heroin at this time. And you look at that picture of him on the cover. I mean, that's a dirty heroin look. You know, he doesn't even bother to watch his hair. <laughs> Anyhow, those are my thoughts on Big Pony, Tom. Okay, so we're at number three, which is Across the Universe. And... This is a, a song that John loves this song, just never really could get an edit that really worked. The words are flowing out like Endless Rain is uh, his wife, Cynthia, like talking to him, kind of yelling at him. And they were laying in bed and, and he goes, once they were done, you know, talking, the words are flowing out like Endless Rain is like her chastising him, which I thought was pretty cool. Jagarudevam means glory to shine, remover of darkness. And hail mm -hmm. to the divine guru. I mean, John said this is his best lyrics of all time. He just never could get a mix that he was happy with. He did work with David Bowie in Young Americans. They did a version of it, which is completely funky together, which may be what he had more in mind, which was completely different than what this sounds like. Words are flowing out like endless rain into a paper cup. They slither wildly as they slip away across the universe. This is a lyric sheet song where you really need to just pull the lyrics up and really take a listen to them because 
even in these mixes, you still don't exactly understand what he's trying to say or, or or read the poetry that's about. And I'm confused by where the Beatles not supportive of it, that they're like, okay, we're bored with the song. We don't want to drill it down to where you're happy with it because he did two versions and he's unhappy with it. So why? Why would he allow it to just kind of go out like that? Like, if he wanted something different, yeah. the Beatles would have stuck by him and said, okay, take number 70, take number 80, whatever it took. I don't understand where he'd say this is my favorite lyrics of all time and then just kind of throw this out. So I guess the word lethargic is used a lot in, in, to describe this album. It was recorded originally before they went to India. Right? This was recorded in February of 68. And they were considering using this as the B-side to Lady Madonna. But because John was not happy with it, they decided to use The Inner Light instead by George. And yes, the lyrics were inspired by Cynthia talking endlessly to John, but she was not past, you know, she was not castrating him. She was not giving him a hard time. She was just speaking with him. And she was speaking a lot. And... That's where words are flowing out like rain into a paper cup came from. But I just wanted to to say that it wasn't. She was not giving him a hard time. If she was giving him a hard time, I'm sure that the the words would have been different. The lyrics would have been different. Uh, I don't know. John, yeah. I would say that you know, there's a lot of her. She could give him a hard time for a lot. You know, for being an absentee husband. You know, okay. doing his own okay. thing, hanging out. He knew that she was having an affair. He had an affair. There's a lot. like, And he was, you know, falling out of love with her. So no no matter what she would say, he would take it that way, you know? Yeah, he he tuned, he tuned her out. He tuned her out. And, he, you know, at first he was irritated. And then he, he turned it into this really magical, cosmic lyric, cosmic uh, piece of music. You know, when I first heard it, I didn't think, oh, God, you know, I can I can hear John must have been really pissed off at his life when he wrote this one. You know, no, I, you, you don't hear that when you hear this song. I don't think so. And then he goes one step further, as you said, with the Jai uh, Guru Deva Om. You know, I mean, my gosh, you want to talk about meditation. I mean, uh, that's, you know, that's your, that's what you say. That's one of the things that you can say when you're meditating. So... The, it's loaded. The lyrics are loaded with beautiful imagery. This is this is a poem. This is John poet. This is poetry. And even though some of the lyrics are abstract, it's it's just so well put together. John, yeah, John loved the song. He considered this song not just the lyric, but he considered this song his best. And I think his vocal is superb. I think he sounds fantastic on this. And the 68 version, you know, is, is okay, except supposedly John felt as though that Paul wasn't really interested in doing it. And then they brought in these two fans, these two girls to sing the background vocals. And then they did the version for the World Wildlife Fund. And they have the flying birds at the beginning and at the end.
know, that was released in December 69 uh, for the No One's Gonna Change Our World album. And then Glenn Johns, again, he did mixes on it, but was not released. John was not happy with those either. So Phil Spector gets hold of it, and what, what Phil did, he added an orchestra and a choir to it. For this, we're talking about the version, of course, on the Let It Be album. And according to John, quote-unquote, Phil did a damn good job. So out of all the mixes that we talked about, John was happiest with Phil's mix. Very interesting. He's playing electric guitars from a wah-wah on this version. Now, the only thing that George plays is, a, is the droning tambora instrument, but it's low in the mix. And Paul plays a piano, which I can barely hear. I don't even know if a piano was in this mix. And Ringo plays percussion. He's not playing a kid. So it's the way that Phil did it. It was It's like a solo John song, really with a little bit of a tambour by George and some percussion by Ringo. And it's just John doing the vocals without Paul doing any harmony, which Paul did harmony on the other versions. I like this version, and this this is my favorite version of the song, and I have all three versions of it, but this is the one that I like the best. I, I, me, me, mine. Oh, dear. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, a great guitar swirl. Guitar work is awesome. I, I, me, me, mine, which is uh, the name of uh, George's autobiography that came out, um, which is basically lyric sheets and some notes on it. And this is really, really very, very sad. At this point, George is so despondent, wanted to present the song, and he presented the song first to Ringo. And he says to Ringo, in so many words, and if you don't like it, I don't care. You know, we don't have to do it. <laughs> he was, George was just so, so gone. He was already out the door. He was out the Beatles' door, you know. But it's the guitar work on it is outstanding. I think, you know, guitar, the George's guitars, the lead guitars are fantastic. Paul makes a very nice contribution uh, with the organ and the electric piano and, of course, his bass guitar is uh, very, very, very good on this track. And Ringo is fine on the drums. Ringo plays, by the way, very, very good drum track on I Me Mind. You know, George and Ringo were, you know, they were, for the most part, they were close chums because even, you know, back in the early days, you know, John and Paul were the... You know, they were the leaders, they were the the frontmen, they were the the primary riders. It was kind of like, you know, Joe, oh, then there's George and Ringo, you know, kind of thing. So that carried through right to the very end. And, uh, you know, I kind of think that's one reason why, you know, Ringo would probably get really excited about, okay, you know, I'm going to play some great drums for my mate George. Not that he wouldn't do a good job for John and Paul, but there was a certain special connection that the two of them had together, I'd say. This is a very, very sad song on a sad album. And as you had mentioned, you know, it's about egos and you know, it's like even you know, even through the tears, you know, they're it's I mean mine, it's all about me, 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 my, mine, mine, I, I, I. 
you know, it's 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 really a, it's a commentary on how George felt about John and Paul. Largely, that's what he wrote this about. And it's 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 really sad that it got to that point, you know, with the Beatles. And John, he he insulted George when when they were working on it. And and John is not on the recording; he's nowhere on the record. He didn't; he had no interest in doing this song with George. You know, I think at one point during the film, which is not, it wasn't. Thank God, it wasn't put in the film. He tells George to get lost, and he calls this song a some kind of like a a silly Spanish waltz. Very sad. Anyhow, it's in two different sections. The verses are in 3-4 time, and then the chorus, which really rips. I mean, the chorus is so strong. And because he wanted to, he was screaming about it. He was screaming, basically, you know, all through the day, all through the night. That's all I hear is me, 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 I, 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 mine, mine, mine. And so they I, me, me, mine, I, me, me, mine. And then Paul does a fantastic harmony with him, by the way, on the 4-4 rock and roll part. And but what's interesting is that the song, harmonically, right, does not end. Yes, it ends audio-wise, of course it does. But in terms of the chords and everything, it does not end. It just kind of drifts off. It's unresolved, as if to say that the I, me, mine continued. That's really very, very interesting. If, in fact, that was George's intention to have that type of an ending, I don't know. Could be, but boy, it's a perfect ending for this song. I like the strings, and I like the brass, and and I think there's a harp in there, too. Now, what's interesting, because Phil Spector is producing this, and obviously, we're not going to have George Martin doing the arrangements. It was Richard Hewson who did the arrangement, and boy, I think he did a fantastic job. I love, I love the additional instruments on this song. Crank the song up, play it loud. The guitar work and the drum work is awesome. Paul in the background. Yes. Uh, this is a win. It's a it's a deep album cut. We come to number five, which is just a little snippet of uh, John saying, dig it. Like a rolling stone. Like a rolling stone. Like the FBI. There's an actual version of Dig It that's over five minutes long. I didn't know who Matt Busby was. He's from Manchester City and Liverpool. Seems like he was a soccer player and then he went into politics. But what's your thought on Dig It? Yeah, by the way, Georgie Wood was uh, actually, uh, he was like a, a music hall performer, child star. They call him Wee Georgie Wood. And that's the reference that I understand it came from. I mean, this is John jamming. It's a John jam. Absolutely. 
and I've heard the, I've heard the longer versions as well. And thank God they only did um, what was it? I think it was only like fifty-one seconds on this album because it's 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 yeah, it's boring. It's just the three chords over and over again. You know, it's those three chords that were used in songs like Twist and Shout, for instance. You know, the same three chords that were used in you know many many uh, rock songs. It, it's it's a, it's a throwaway. It's an, it's an extra. It's a filler. Yeah. There's you know John John's playing a six string bass and and Billy Preston's on the organ and you got George Martin which is unusual. He's playing maracas or some kind of percussion on this thing. But it was produced by Phil. Phil put in 51 seconds of it uh, from the jam sessions. This is the jam that they did. There's not much more to say about it. You know, do I really like it? Uh, I could do without it. It's not certainly it doesn't even approach um, a good song. It's an okay filler track. Done without it, as far as I'm concerned. It's time to let it be. It was, oh boy, yeah. It was uh, released on uh, March 6, 1970. Backside, the B side was "You Know My Name." Look up the number. The single version that hit the American airwaves was produced by George Martin, and yeah. that was on the 1967-1970 album, the Blue Album. The single is not on this album. It debuted at number no. six and went right to number one. Mojo calls this the number 50 of the 101 greatest Beatles songs. Rolling Stone ranked it number eight of the best Beatles songs. Oh, when it comes down to the best 500 songs of all time, they ranked it number 20. It was number one for two weeks. There's tons of R&B and jazz covers of this song. I like this song. I'm a little overplayed on it now through you know 50 years into it. I think it's a beautiful song. I think it's uh, when I first heard it or the first, you know, 10 years that I heard it, I thought it was downright stunning and amazing. Any version that they have, I just think it's a, a great song. I understand that there's Paul haters out there who think this is a little sappy song and I disagree. I think it's I think it's fantastic. It's one of Paul's best songs. Absolutely. And it was inspired because he dreamt about his mom who said Basically, when things get rough and you find yourself in difficult times, you know, just let it be. And God knows that Paul was going through difficult times because he couldn't get, he couldn't do what he wanted to do. He couldn't keep the Beatles together. He couldn't get the Beatles back together. So it's almost like a prayer in a way, this song. I think there's something very, very spiritual about it. In a way like, how the piano became the centerpiece for a lot of musicians and bands when Hey Jude was released. Boom, here we are again, you know, with Paul at the piano with another, you know, song, this incredible song, powerful, powerful song. It's it's a song that actually can make me cry when I listen to it, in a way, because it's extremely, for me, it's an extremely emotional piece of music. And even the background voices sound like a choir, you know, like like a church choir. The way they, the way that it was produced, beautiful background voices. Billy Preston is on it as well. Yeah, but this to me is one of one of the all time best Beatles songs ever. Supposedly Linda McCartney is doing background vocals, but she's so mixed in that I don't quite hear her voice. But she could be mixed in somewhere. But the backing vocals that John and that George did, and I guess Linda's in there. And by the way, Paul did some background vocals too. 
just a beautiful, beautiful, it's like I said, like a choir, which is perfect for this this type of song. The, the version on the album, unlike the single, I prefer. I prefer Phil's version because he had George do a different lead guitar solo. And the lead guitar solo that George plays on the album, whoa, is, I, I think it's one of his best. Absolutely one of his best efforts. And but the first guitar solo that he did that's on the single, it, it bleeds through on the album version. You can hear it. You can't remove it from the mix because it was it was bleeding through on the microphones. So it's there. But boy, that the lead the lead guitar solo that he did with Phil, oh is just brilliant. And Phil made the orchestra louder than the way that that George Martin had mixed it and produced it. And then Phil put this digital delay on the hi-hat, which is very neat. You know, it's a very, very neat sound. So this is my favorite version. There's got to be at least three versions of Let It Be. And, you know, there's the one on Anthology. There's the single, of course, produced by George Martin. And then there's this one. And this one, for me, by far, is is my favorite. I, I love what Phil Spector did with it. We are flipping the album over. We're going right to Maggie May, which is a 39-second skiffle piece that's in public domain. So never said who, who wrote it, but it's just John on vocals. You have 39 seconds to talk to. What, what's your thoughts of this piece? Yeah, well, Maggie May, this is a, a, an old, you know, traditional Liverpool folk song, you know, a skiffle folk song that John and Paul used to play when they were kids. So it fits in with this because this, again, is not only the Let It Be album, it is the, should be, you know, could be called the Trying to Get Back album. And it's a big acoustic song. It's just John and Paul on on acoustic guitars, and there's George once again playing a bass line on his six-string electric uh, Fender Telecaster, the same kind of thing that he did on The Two of Us. And it's, it's just a little ditty. It, it it fits into, again, the concept and the thematic element of the album. It does, it does fit in. I think it really does. But it's so brief and so quick that uh, it could have been longer, actually. I would, pref- I would have preferred it if, <laughs> if they did a longer version of Maggie May. Because I've got a feeling is two songs. The I've got a feeling is Paul's. Everybody had a hard year. Was John? Yeah. And there's yeah. a song that he was working on, and he did have a hard year. And you have to think about it. I believe he was still addicted to heroin. He divorced his yep. wife. He had Yoko. There was uh, Kyoko had a problem. He had a lot of lawsuits going on. His solo stuff at that point was getting banned and and uh, trashed. Uh, for I think they did their their bed in already, and that was a tough time. Also, it was a lot, so uh, it would have been interesting to hear both of these songs fully 
uh, put together as individual songs. But as uh, a merger of two songs and two thought ideas, I love this song. And I know that Paul, by five songs into his live set now, plays this song. And, it, and he really rocks it out. Well, yes. Two different songs entirely that work very well together. It's not nothing like the two different sections of A Day in the Life. However, it's similar in the sense that Paul had one song and John had a different song. And they were able to put them together. And the part I love the, the most is the ending bit, you know, the last time they go through. You've got the two songs going on simultaneously. Yeah, that's really, that's very Beatles at the best in a way. Now, they were still able to pull off some really cool stuff, and that's definitely one of the things in this song that worked so well. And as you had mentioned, you know, John did have a hard year. I mean, Yoko had a miscarriage, for God's sake. And, you know, John was unhappy with the Beatles. He got busted for drug possession. You know, it was a terrible year. But then he says, everybody had a hard year. And then he goes on to say, everybody had a good year. Everybody let their hair down. You know, so everybody pulled their socks up. So, you know. He, he he's going back and forth on a hard year and a good year, you know, to provide some interesting contrast. Now, it's a very, very good song. I think, in a way, that this is one of the best songs on the album. I, I'd go so far as to say that. You can hear that they're having a good time. But even though the band is pretty much done, that when they're playing and they're singing this song, they sound really good together. They really do. And I'm I was delighted to hear that. Because that's what we want. That's what we want to experience when we're listening to a Beatles song. And they did that. They pulled it off, even though they were falling apart. And when Paul sings on the bridge, and boy, he's he's ripping vocally. You know, all these years I've been running all around trying to find somebody who looks like a you. You know, he's talking straight to Linda. I mean, that's what I think. You know, someone might say, oh, no, he's, he's he wrote that about John. <laughs> I don't know. I think he I think he was singing that right. And he was he screams. He screams on the bridge and he does a great job vocally on this song. So and then, of course, Billy Preston, you know, he's on he's on board. He's on board with the electric piano, and it's a it's a it's a great John and Paul duet song. It's it's as I, as I say, it's one of the best songs on the album. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I wanted to go back to Let It Be for a second. Um, yeah. The one thing about the Let It Be is that it was featured in the movie where he's looking at the camera and yep. the whole song is produced it's one of the few songs that you get to see a whole song you know live in the studio that kind of thing and right. i know that when i read all my beetle books that there's some 
Paul bashing that that he was mugging for the camera, like everyone else is disinterested and he's showboating and uh, he has this song. And, and I'm just saying that it, it's weird how bashed he got in the movie for singing this song. And it's just was really one of the highlights of that movie. <laughs> so I think that's ridiculous. Yeah, because they didn't want to be there. They were already out the door. You know, John was with Yoko when he started the Plastic Ono Band, and George had quit the band during those sessions, and you know, it was time to attack Paul. And Paul was being bossy and criticizing George, and Paul's trying to convince John of something. I know there's this bit in the film where I'm going, oh, well, you know, we could do this, and, you know, it's just like that. John's sitting there smoking the cigarette, looking at it, bored out of his gourd. He didn't even respond. So, yeah, of course gonna, the camera's going to be on Paul. He's singing the lead vocal, for God's sake. What are they going to do, keep the camera on Ringo? You know, come on, let's, let's, be, let's not be silly here. Whoever said that about, about oh, well, Paul's mugging the camera. Yeah, yeah it's, it's just, it's so weird how um, Beatle narratives, like, are are created and uh this is a falsity i think that through time you know people will realize but when you write you know 20 beetle books and and they repeat the same thing over and over we see what was going on the job was to get the song done one after 909 they wanted to have a, like a freight train song like something like the midnight special uh, that was their motivation for this song, and I think they were successful. I this is the Trying to Get Back album. So this is one of the first songs that they wrote together, John and Paul, as early as 1957. Talk about going back. And there's a spirit in the recording where, yeah, you know, they're, they're digging it. They're having fun. They're having a good time. And again, it's that same kind of vibe that I talked about with I've Got a Feeling, where you can hear that they're, they're playing together, and it sounds like they're having a good time while they're doing it. And that energy and that feel is in this recording. And uh, the harmony, you know, the John Paul harmony and the verses and the chorus is indicative of how they sang, you know, way back in the early days again, which, gosh, you know, is just wonderful. They did record this in 63. They didn't play it as a shuffle. This is a shuffle the one on the Let It Be album. But back in 63, it was a... Which I love, which I prefer. I prefer that one. But it wasn't a complete recording, and then they shelved it, and then they brought it out for this album. Uh, the thing I don't like about it, and this is just a, me being a musician, is that there's a splashy hi-hat throughout most of the track, and uh, I would have preferred some, something other than, because it's noisy, you know, it's noisy. I mean, certainly, that gives it a live vibe, for sure, the splashy hi-hat, but that's, that's my only criticism of the song. And it certainly belongs on this album, there's no doubt about it, and I'm glad it is. Well, Tom, it certainly has been the long and winding road with you, you know, as we do the Beatles Come to America series, and we're on the last album. Yeah, it seems like almost like a year knocking this out. And we've came to The Long and Winding Road. This song, we've been through a lot sitting here talking about our thoughts. Uh, this, this song here was released a month after their breakup. So it was May 1970. It became their 20th number one. Uh, mm -hmm. It's the ranked as number 90 of the top 100 greatest songs of all time by Rolling Stone. Paul thought of Ray Charles that this would be a great Ray Charles song, so he did a version of it, and it became a big hit. 
the B side is for you blue. It was number one for two weeks. Big hits uh, covers by Billy Ocean, Cecilia Black, Ray Charles, uh, Leo Sayer, George Michael, Belma Moore, oh yeah, uh, Peter Frampton, and Barry White, and millions of other people. Like millions. This is a well copied, covered song, just like Let It Be. Ninety to me is really way offline. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't get it. But the oh. long, the long and winding road is uh, if you talk about uh, like it tears you up to hear. Uh, this song is fantastic and emotional, and I don't know. I don't have any critique that it's it's bad. I just know that I love it so much. I think it's a great song. Well, this is the saddest Beatle song ever recorded. This is the saddest one. So it belongs on this album, on the sad album. And Paul's voice, he delivered the, the perfect emotion of the lyric because he meant it. You know, he had been on this long and winding road with the Beatles, and it still led him back. He's saying to John, especially, don't leave me waiting here. You know, lead me to your door. I mean, good God. I mean, this guy, McCartney, his life, even with Linda in his life, he Beatles were he couldn't I don't think he could imagine and I know that when the Beatles broke up that you know he of course it, it got ugly and, and all the fights were going on and the lawsuits and the Alan Klein stuff and all that. But McCartney did not want that door to close. And there is no Beatle fan in the world that wanted the Beatle door to close. Are you kidding me? So when you heard this song after the fact that they had officially split up and then this hit the airwaves. Oh my God. You know, where where are the tissues? You know, get 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 the tissues. You know, the tears were flowing. And at the very, very end of the song, he says, Yeah, 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 yeah And of course, at the end of She Loves You, they say, Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean I could say that there's a connection where he's tying it up neatly from the very beginning when the Beatles were a huge hit. Beatle Mania exploded in the U.S. with She Loves You. And now we're hearing the last song. And the answer with, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think there's a connection there. Lyrically, obviously, lyrically, it's the same thing. It's the arrangement that, again, Richard Houston did. Uh, outstanding. And then John Barham did the choral arrangement. Outstanding. You got Billy Preston playing the Fender Rhodes. John playing the bass, which I'm surprised that Paul did not overdub the bass because the bass line is not very good. It's okay, but McCartney could have done so much more bass. And, you know, George is playing some electric guitar. But this is a real, really, really very, very sad song, and it still is, still is for me. It's a very sad song. And, of course, there's the big dispute that happened when Paul's vision of the song was it to be just piano, the bass, the drums, and then George playing some, some electric guitar and Billy Preston on the Fender Rhodes electric piano. And then Phil Spector brings in the orchestra and brings in the chorus. And you probably know the story, is that Ringo went over to, I think it was Ringo, went to Paul's house to, to deliver the song. 
mix that Phil had done, and Paul went nuts. And that was one of the nails in the, in the coffin. That was one of the reasons why I quit the Beatles. That's how upset he was. I think the reason, I think the thing that he really he was pissed off about was that Phil didn't even consult with Paul because this was Paul's song. You know, Paul wrote the song. It's his song. You know, as a producer, you might want to say, hey, Hey Paul, you know, would, how about this? What do you think about if I do this? If I bring the bring in this instrument or the voices, you know, at least speak with the man, speak with the writer, please speak with the author. And Phil didn't do that, and I think that was a huge mistake on Phil's part, because if he had handled it differently, you know, then. Paul would have spoken with them, and who knows what would have happened, but he did. And so McCartney was really just explosively angry with, with Phil about it. But the funny thing is, is that when Paul performs his song now with his band, what does he do? He uses the arrangement that Phil Spector did when he produced The Long and Winding Road on the album. That's kind of funny in a way. So we're up for For You Blue. Uh, it's a The B-side of Long and Winding Road actually hit number six in an Austria. Austria. Yeah, yes. Austria was in love with this song. It hit in other countries. They were almost thinking about saying this is a, a two-sided hit. However, in America, it only hit 71. It's a 12-bar blues. It's influenced by Bob Dylan and the band. It was called Georgie's Blues Because You're Sweet and Lovely. There's a ad lib in there about Elmore James. I don't think that, that that's Elmore James quality, but it's fun that he said that. It's not my favorite song on the album, believe it or not. For You Blue, yeah, George. It's a, quote-unquote, according to George, it's a kind of a happy country blues song. It is, because it's, a, it's really a love song for Patty. It really is, lyrically, it certainly is. And they sound good. This is a good-sounding recording. And John's doing that lap steel guitar, and he does the solo. And then Paul is playing what they call a fixed piano, where he actually put, like, paper in between the strings to give it that really almost... It's, it's more than talk-talk. It goes even, like, one or two steps further in terms of a really uh, bright, metallic... It's metallic-sounding piano. Very unusual. That's the only time they did that. And, you know, George is on the acoustic guitar, and then Paul overdubbed the bass. It, it, to me, it, and it sounds like there's another piano in the mix, uh, a regular piano. But that's what I'm hearing, and they don't, no one has credited that. And, it's, you know, it's a 12-bar blues song. It's a good song. Is it a great song? No. It's not as good as I Me Mine, but it's, um, you know, it's a fun song. So at least it's a happy song, <laughs> even though it's a, a song about, it's a blues song. It's a happy blues song. At least it's a happy song, a love song for Patty on a sad album. So I'm glad that it's on there because it provides some necessary contrast to the heaviness and the fact that the Beatles are no more. Okay, Tom, we're wrapping it up. Get back. Is this a, the live version from the rooftop or is this a studio version? No, no, this is the, this is the rooftop. It, it, I think it's uh, pretty tight for those guys not playing live together. Well, yeah, they they played this song a number of times up on the roof. So, 
because there's one version where John's playing wrong notes. <laughs> Obviously, that's not this version. But this was, yeah, this recording was recorded on, on the roof, the album version, yeah. That's pretty awesome. Uh, this is yeah. this is kind of why I say this it feels Doorsian to me. It has a, like a, a lot of blues vibe to it. A lo- it's a rocker, and it, uh, Billy Preston sounds great on it. He had um, featuring Billy Preston on this forty-five, right? Oh yeah, Billy's playing playing Let's Oh yeah, what a what a boost to his career. <laughs> oh yeah, boost. oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Okay, so I love the song. There's, I think it's a great song. I, I you know, mix wise, I, I may have done something different, but it's a live song, so there's nothing you can do. Uh, I remember this on the rooftop so clearly. Everyone remembers the rooftop scene and how amazing. That's the price of admission for this movie is just the rooftop scene in, in general. It's iconic, and it's another number one hit. I'm gonna let you talk about Get Back, the last song on this album, last song, period. Yeah, it's a, it's a good song. It's not a great song. I mean, if you look at the entire Beatles song catalog of every song that we've talked about when we since we started this series, and we talked about every song on every album that was released in the United States, this song is not a great song. It's a good song. It's upbeat in the way. But, I mean, the fact that he's even Paul wrote it, Paul is... Again, get back, get back to where you once belong. Well, what is he saying? He wants to get the Beatles back to their roots. And that's why it's a pretty much a straight, you know, flat out rock and roll song going back to their, getting back to their roots. But, you know, they did, they did get back to their roots and they did play rock and roll. But of course, they couldn't get the band back together again. There's a couple of interesting things in this song. Back in 68, the latter part of 68, George Harrison wrote a song called Sour Milk Sea for Jackie Lomax, who was on the one of the new Apple record recording artists. Jackie was a friend of theirs from Liverpool. And by the way, McCartney plays on the song Sour Milk Sea which Jackie sings the lead vocal, Ringo's on drums, Eric Clapton's on guitar, George produced it. And there's a lyric in the Sour Milk Sea about, there's a get back lyric. Jackie's talking about get back here and there. Paul picked up on that, I think, and developed it into the song Get Back. He talks about JoJo. You know JoJo, right? JoJo from Tucson? Yeah, Georgia left his home in Tucson, Arizona for some California grass. Well, we know what that's all about. He wasn't going out there to mow the lawn. (laughs) So who's JoJo? Do you know who JoJo is? I don't know. Okay, you're going to know right now. It's Linda Eastman's ex-husband, Joseph C. S. E. E. And Joseph lived in Tucson, Arizona. So that's that's who the JoJo reference is. John plays lead guitar, which he didn't play much lead guitar, but now he's playing, starting to play some more lead guitar. George is playing the rhythm guitar. Billy's on the Fender Rhodes again. And here's the thing that really bothers me about this song. It is knowing what McCartney has done with his bass playing on the songs that we've discussed through this series. This is the most boring bass line McCartney ever played. 
he is just playing one note over and over again. And I thought to myself, what the hell is this all about? But that's what he did. I wish he didn't. Because it's so boring. I mean, this is McCartney, one of the most imaginative, melodious, melodious bass players in the world. And he's playing one note on one chord. Then he goes to the other note on the other chord. And that's it. It's a total bore. Uh, I'm really disappointed in the bass line. And... They couldn't get back, so they had to let it be, so that's sad. And then at the very, very end, the way it ends is John. You know what he says. I'd like to thank you on behalf of myself and the group, and I hope we pass the audition. Well, that goes back, you want to talk about get back, to when they were trying to pass the audition for Decca Records on January 1st, 1962. So there's a five-year sweep in the reference back to the very beginning of them trying to get into the recording studio and make records. That, to me, is the perfect way to end the album. This is the last album. And to end what is the end of the Beatles. It's overwhelming, isn't it? Get the tissues. Where are the tissues here? I, I mean, it's just a, a, there's three number one hits on this album. They're all completely different. Um, yeah. They're all intense. They're all Paul songs. Uh, recently, I was listening to uh, Bill Maher. And he had said the Beatles would have been still around if they flipped it and gave John the A-sides, uh, that his ego was uh, deflated, that the Paul carried the last couple from Hey Jude on, you know, for A-sides. I, I, I don't buy that. I No. John was already gone. Yeah. I mean, I, he was John having a was, bad year. He, he, met, he met Yoko and, and he, he left Cynthia in 68. You know, when they were working on the White Album, and, you know, we had Revolution as a B-side. Okay, is that the reason to to quit the band because it wasn't an A-side over Hey Jude? Oh, come on. Yeah, it's just a he hypothetical. Was, he, was, he, he was quitting the band anyway, so it wouldn't have mattered. I don't think it would have made any difference. I think he was distracted you know, also. He, yeah, he had, he had come together, you know. You know, that was a, a double A-side with George or something. You know, that was... I'm sure he was pleased about that. What, when you were talking, one thing I noticed is that Paul never worked with Phil Spector after this. So obviously that severed ties. Paul didn't work with Billy Preston either. Uh, John and George both worked with uh, Billy Preston and Phil Spector later. So there was an alliance there where you know Paul just uh, removed himself from all the past players, went solo and did his own thing. Do you feel that Billy Preston would have continued in other al- albums or configurations of this band? Well, I do know that when George brought Billy Preston into the Twickenham studios after George decided to return to the Beatles after quitting for a week or so, that John was so impressed that he wanted Billy to join the band. <laughs> he wanted Billy to be one of the Beatles, but Paul wouldn't hear of it. Now, if that had happened, 
God only knows what would have happened. I mean, that would have opened up all different types of avenues. So who knows? But that that didn't happen. So to your question that, you know, Billy did continue to work. He worked, obviously, with George Harrison, you know, on a number of different recordings. But Billy did not work with Paul. And he and Billy worked with John. You know, Billy's on John's first solo album. He's on the Plastic Keys and the Plastic Ono Band. So, yeah, Paul, when when the split happened and they broke up, Paul was off on his own. And he, he didn't work with any of the people in the Beatle camp, so to speak. He did he did work with Ringo on the Ringo album, as we know. But, no, he didn't work with Phil Spector. I mean, he was, he was furious with Phil because we talked about him, with what Phil did with the Long and Winding Road without getting Paul's permission. So... That's why Paul never worked with Phil Speck. That's the reason. So we're at the point of ranking everything, and uh, oh god, oh yeah. gee. <laughs> oh my god! All right, so we'll we'll do a follow up uh, next. Yeah, week. we'll do a follow up, and we'll do the countdown. Yeah, yeah, I think people love that stuff. Yeah, we will. Okay. All righty. Okay, my friend. Thanks okay. very much, Tom. All right, I'll talk to you soon. So next Sunday at five, right? You got it. Your time. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, Thanks, Paul. Bye bye.